Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is illness and healing. And let me begin with a little disclaimer. We are theologians, doctors of theology, not doctors of medicine. So nothing you hear in this episode should be taken in lieu of medical advice from a professional. But we do want to talk about this from a theological point of view. And undoubtedly, we will be bringing our own experiences to bear, which include um, being bodies and living in this world and having experienced illness of various kinds, as well as healing of various kinds. So that will inevitably uh, bear on what we say here. But again, we are not medical professionals. Okay, so Dad, in thinking about this topic, um, as you know, from the very long set of notes I sent you, I found that it just kept getting away from me. It's such a big topic and trying to even shoehorn it into a, uh, a narrower theological Uh, channel was quite a challenge. But the importance of it came to me again, fortunately not because um, I got sick, though, of course, one of the reasons we chose this topic is the pandemic. But for a positive reason and a negative reason, the positive one is that um, I have been working low these many years with the International Lutheran Pentecostal Dialogue. And one of the sections of our forthcoming report is on the very topic of illness and healing. And I think we did some really great work there, though I cannot disclose it to the public just yet. But then on the flip side, uh, Dad, I haven't told you this, but on uh, last Sunday when I was um, in the busy neighborhood of Tokyo where my church is, I came across a parade of looked like mainly Japanese and African women. They were wearing yellow t-shirts and carrying yellow balloons and handing out flyers. And it just looked to me like the flyers were for like a women's shelter of some kind. So I, I And they had ones in, in English as well as Japanese. So I took one you know, just thinking, you know, oh, it'd be good to have this know about this resource. But then, Dad, when I looked at the flyer more carefully and followed up on its internet presence, I discovered it is actually a help center that is an outpost of a notorious Latin American prosperity church, which shall remain nameless so as not to promote it further, and whose web presence has a lot to say about power and very little to say about Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. So that's that's in my church's neighborhood. What was interesting to me is it had this long list of things that afflict people from aches, pains, smoking and other addictions to witchcraft, curses and spiritual attacks. And they were offering to help heal all of them with the power that they had. So I think the need is urgent. And one of the reasons these questionable healing ministries pop up, I'm going to go so far as to say probably reflect a popular feeling that both the medical profession and the more mainstream religious organizations are not addressing the enormous hurt that people are experiencing. Well, amen to that, sister. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. There's an awful... I used to come home from working out visiting people in the congregation when I was a full-time pastor, and I would say to your mother when we debriefed about the day, You have no idea what burdens people carry. And it's just not just physical ailments and bodily health, but given the psychosomatic unity of the human person, all sorts of psychological distress and inner turmoil and anxiety and worry. Uh, I think that we people in the Western world, and I suppose you could include contemporary Japan as at least economically, uh, as part of that Western capitalist world. We're the wealthiest society in human history, but the misery index, I think, is pretty profound uh, if you scratch below the surface. To comment to Japan's place, uh, I think the medical outcomes may be better, but the suicide rate is unbelievable here. I think it may be, Mm. except for possibly South Korea, the highest in the world. Uh, I think that... The uh, prosperity gospel parade that you reported, I do think they are actually, they have a a grain of truth about them in the sense that the materialist theology of the Old Testament, the Jewish theology that comes out of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, is very much down on the earth and very much concerned with blessing. If you do a a careful study of the book of Genesis, 
It's all about the blessing, about God's blessing and getting it and losing it and getting it back again. And uh, Klaus Westermann, the Old Testament professor uh, of Heidelberg, I think he was at in Germany, uh, wrote profoundly on this theme about the theology of blessing uh, in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. And I think that that idea that God creates a good earth and puts good creatures on it under human dominion care for the sake of blessing, which is what prosperity really is, to be, who wouldn't want to have a blessed life? You know, I think that's part of the theological tradition, inheritance. I also think that the first half of the gospel narrative is all about Jesus the healer and how the crowds flock to him with their mundane, bodily, this-worldly problems and troubles. And he graciously gave them healing and relief from their distresses. And at least that aspect of the gospel story is better preserved among Pentecostals than it is among mainline Christians. Yeah, I think I, I have a certain hypocrisy towards prosperity churches because on the one hand, I find them revolting for their excesses and abuses, which we can in, get into. But on the other hand, both things that they say I agree with, I just don't like the way they couple them. <laughs> so one thing they say is, you know, they talk about God and God's blessing, just like you described. I don't argue with that. And then on the other hand, they talk about the the difference that your attitude makes, you know, your, your community connectedness makes, your positive thinking. And, you know, I know that has a very checkered history and even an American intellectual thought and can be definitely be abused. But there's simply no denying the fact that actually how you feel about your body, about your health, about your prospects when you're sick does have measurable, I mean, scientifically measurable impact. It's just putting those two together and making a causal relationship like you can uh, tip God's hand or force the blessing or much more dangerously blame the unhealed or uncured person for failing to get it on their lack of faith or their evil or something like that. Well, sure. And that's that's a sign, isn't it? How, how much of this is how much of this is really uh, a form of magical thinking. I want to use the word magical in a in a technical way, the way scholars use it in religious studies. Uh, magic is pre-scientific science. It's a belief in the causal nexus. It's a belief that uh, things are all systematically connected uh, by hidden laws. So you can see the genealogy of contemporary uh, scientific inquiry and into, na into nature in ancient magic. It is a, a, a direct line of descent. Uh, it differs, of course, in other ways, but the idea that there are occult or hidden laws operating behind the invisible appearance of things and that human beings can gain knowledge of these occult laws and use them to their advantage to cause outcomes that they find preferable. You know, there's not a huge difference in phenomenologically in the attitudes of ancient magic and modern technological applications of science. Well, and imagine what it was like for people who first figured out or started hearing about bacteria and fungi and hormones. Like, th they were right. There were these invisible forces and powers they knew nothing about. We can now give them, uh, I'm not trying to, to exclude supernatural things too, which we'll get to in a second, but just saying they weren't wrong. They just didn't know the particular shape these invisible forces on their lives were taking. Yeah, the pre-modern magic was unsuccessful science. And today's science is, with its medical technology, is highly successful magic, if I can put it that way. I would say episodically successful magic. Right, episodically, right. Uh, but the, po the point being is that both believe that there are hidden laws of nature that human beings by knowledge can access and then manipulate to their benefit. That's a, that's a fundamental continuity. And... Right. What's so different about healing in the, in the Bible, healing in the New Testament, 
and this I mean this in strictest uh, logic, is that the healings Jesus does in the Gospels are not magical. They are genuine mm. miracles. They are not manipulations of the hidden laws of nature. And in fact, anyone who tries to imitate Jesus's healings by turning him into an incantation or a formula or a method or a recipe fails. And the only ones who succeed in conducting the miracles of Jesus are those who do so strictly in the name of, which means according to the will of Jesus Christ. Silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give to thee in the name of Jesus Christ arise, Peter says to the crippled man at the gate of the temple. So what differentiates the healing miracles of Jesus is that they are not causal manipulations. They are invocations of the personal will of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we can say that what prosperity practice does is make a um, binding and mechanistic law out of what was intended to be a divine will of grace towards a, an individual. And because sometimes people do respond to their circumstances, they can perceive or experience something that looks like healing according to these mechanistic laws, and we can be happy for their improvement in health. But what's really lacking here, and I bet listeners won't be surprised to hear this conclusion coming from us, is a lack of good teaching about what healing is in biblical perspective. I think that's exactly right. And of course, if it's a personal will of God, that means it's a free will, that God has the freedom to hear our prayers according to our wishes uh, and to answer them according to God's wishes. And so that's kind of like the standard caveat. If it be thy will, please heal me. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the part we all hate. Right, according to your will. And that means that the goods of God's blessing are not limited to or, re or reducible to temporal prosperity, but exceed that, uh, of course, in the way that the resurrection exceeds our death. All right, well, why don't we undertake to lay out some better teaching about the nature of illness and healing in, as a way of uh, stepping towards honoring what the at least instinct of prosperity churches get right, but trying to put it in a more fruitful direction and bringing more of the mainstream along with us in the process. Sure. All right, where I'd like to start, and um, I, I'd like to know what you think about this. I've reflected for a while, especially since becoming more aware of uh, charismatic and prosperity-related things. Those are not identical terms, by the way. But that we often operate with a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've concluded that that is not a biblical or Christian distinction. It's something more like a hangover of magic or uh, Greek thoughts. But the biblical distinction is between the creator and the creature, not between supernature and nature. And the reason why I think this is relevant and important is because... If you operate with a natural supernatural distinction, then you have to pick sides when talking about something like healing or miracles. It has to be an either or. So what I mean is either you say what you thought was a miracle of healing is purely a natural process. We just don't see how it happened. But there's some there's some hidden scientific law about why this person got better. If you have take the other extreme, you say, no, there is no accounting in a, a purely um, natural sense for this person's miraculous healing. And you actually are, are have to push towards proving, actually proving, which is, a, again, a scientific thing, that there was no scientific healing, no, no this worldly naturalistic healing. It was purely an amazing supernatural act of God and miracle. And I feel in my bones that this is exactly the wrong way to go about it. And in fact, in, in our particular society, really exacerbates this very false religion-science dichotomy. I think if we move towards a creator-creature distinction instead, it, this, this false alternative simply evaporates. Sure. I think that you're right. This is a subtle conceptual shift that you're asking for, because roughly speaking, of course, a, a, almost a common sense objection to what you're saying is to posit a creator of us 
and then in turn to posit our reality as that of creation is itself a supernatural distinction as opposed to a natural explanation of the history of the cosmos. But I think the objection fails, and you're, you're right about this, because the, nat- the concept of nature, physis in Greek, natura in Latin, goes back really to the great influence of Aristotle through the centuries. And Aristotle's attempt uh, to save uh, the phenomena by interpreting natural events naturally. You know, that is to say that things unfold according to the hidden law of their own essences, uh, their own forms, the intelligent, intelligent idea which makes anything what it is, is its governing rationality and its intrinsic purposefulness. And so things operate according to their nature when they conform to their uh, natural purposes, which are their intelligent ideas. And that's all that's bottled up in the simple word nature and the way the word nature is used. And so if you want to to then talk about God as opposed to nature in this scheme, you have no choice but to turn God into something that's beyond nature, that's hyper-nature. That's, I don't know how else to put it. It, it, The very idea of being supernature simply means that you're beyond nature. I know not what. And in fact, that's the way a lot of theology that depends on Aristotle finally ends up, that there's always an ever greater difference than the similarity between God's nature and creaturely nature. And that ever greater difference finally means when it comes to God's nature, I don't know what it is. I can't say anything about it. It's beyond me. It's a supernature. And then, of course, dishonestly, that idea then gets used to explain miracles in the way that you were talking about, dishonestly and incoherently to naturalists. Right, because like you said, if if nature is the logical unfolding of how something actually is, then the only way that God in this conception could interact with nature is by violating the very thing it created. he created it to be in the first place. I just don't think you can successfully map creator-creature onto supernature nature, even though we do it all the time. Right. So, Sarah, what would your alternative concept of creator and creature look like? I think, first of all, what it does is it allows, to a certain extent, things to be what they are because God created them. And this is part of the the primal story of naming things and letting them come into existence. But it doesn't imply to me that um, God is hands-off and lets things um, develop naturally. And then when they go off course, suddenly he has to jump in. But rather, it suggests that God is continually present and active in the unfolding of everything. And there Therefore, I think for the the impact for healing particularly is um, something you alluded to earlier, which is that we are total unities, our bodies, minds, souls, emotion, heart, kidneys, you know, all the the metaphors we use to talk about our our consciousness and and emotional life. There's not an artificial distinction or... um, let me say that a naturalistic distinction between like how my spleen operates and how my brain and its feelings operates. I, I'm I, clearly groping a bit here because I'm still trying to work towards a better distinction, and it's very hard to fight against this Neoplatonic heritage of of nature. Well, let me make a let me make a suggestion. Then let's begin with the idea that the title, the word creator, is a title. A title. It's like president of the United States or prime minister of England or something like that. To call someone God, that is the creator of all that is not God, that is a title for the all, what Wolfhard Pannenberg, I think one of the ideas of Pannenberg's that I rather like, is he argued in his theology, especially his early theology, that the word G-O-D refers to the all-determining reality, which he meant in an eschatological sense, the one who finally proves to be the decisive agent of all that happens. 
Uh, that doesn't mean there's, there's lots of space for other agents, created agents. But God as creator is the one who initiates it, supervises it, brings it to completion, so that in the end, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, God will be all things to everyone, the all-determining reality. And what talking about creator as a title for the one who pulls that off does is it moves creator away from association with the beginning, as if God created once upon a time in the past, and that's the end of the story. And now the creator job is done. The uh, creation is running on automatic, and uh, God now moves to a new office of redeemer or fulfiller or something like that. No, from the very beginning, the creator has a purpose, a goal for the creation, which we hold is in Christ to hold all things together in Christ, to reconcile all things in Christ. And that that is done by the gospel mission of the Holy Spirit uh, to the nations and so forth. So creator cannot be then reduced to the initial startup. It is the whole Trinitarian economy of salvation on the way to the ultimate healing of the beloved community of God. So that really shows why theologically it's so mistaken to talk about miracles, to glorify miracles as God breaking his own rules to save your life, because that that implies this kind of um, dissociation within God between his protological rules he laid down for nature, and then he just kind of let it go like a deistic clockmaker, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, 50 million years later, Mary's having a crisis, and so he's going to jump back in and <laughs> fix things again. And somehow that makes him more godly, when in fact, I think we'd say his continued presence throughout would be a <laughs> would be a preferable option for God. Right. And it, it also makes it clear what Christian faith is. Uh, Christian faith is not the abstract proposition there is a creator. And all the wearisome debates we get into between atheists and theists about whether a creator God taken in this protological way is a reasonable supposition or a reasonable idea. And as long as that debate is framed that way, we never get to talk about the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit and the goal of the consummation of the age in the coming of the heavenly uh, Jerusalem uh, and that God makes his dwelling upon earth and wipes every tear from every eye in a redeemed humanity, the ultimate healing of all that's broken in the world. We never get to that, and that's essential for what Christians want to say about G-O-D. So treating the word creator as a title makes it clear that Christian faith is the assertion or the proposition that Jesus uh, and his Father and their Spirit are the one who will prove to be the all-determining reality, the creator of heaven and earth in its final doxological state. Okay, I really like that. I think that gives us a much better doctrine of God to move forward. But since our topic is is illness and healing, to me, this just immediately presses the urgent question. If God is creator of all and will be all in all, how did things get messed up so badly in between beginning and end that such a thing as illness even happens? And we, we can talk about sin, too. We should talk about sin, but let's try to keep it focused on even just the... Uh, um, the more immediate problem of of uh, plants and animals dying or suffering badly, things going wrong, and how they were intended to be. I think this is where the the theodicy question starts to impinge back very sharply on this even much improved doctrine of God. Well, I think one thing that this perspective would help with, Sarah, is that when it comes to uh, illness and disease of various kinds, the general biblical attitude is that these are afflictions. These are attacks, if that's not too strong a word, uh, that reduce one's uh, being uh, to the point of uh, being like Job, reduced uh, to uh, sorrow and 
perplexity and shaking one's fist in the affirmation that I've done nothing to deserve this. I'm a victim of something I know not what, and all I really want is to know why God did this to me or why God permitted this to happen. So, yes, of course, the theodicy question is important. And, of course, biblically, too, we can say, when we look at all the narrative of Scripture, for the most part, illness and disease are regarded as afflictions which are contrary to the Creator's well-being, wholeness, and prosperity. And these afflictions uh, create a vast enigma, a spiritual suffering, about why providence, why God, why the all-determining reality is putting me through the ringer this way. Yeah. Um, so again, <laughs> this just this is why my my notes got so expansive because this just pushes me from one thing to the next. Let's let's bracket this here. We'll come back to theodicy, but I think we need to talk about what illness actually is because surely now, as in biblical times, we experience it as affliction. But there's a lot of different things going on under the common category of illness. And even this was beginning to run away from me. So let me let me just reel off a few here. So my first thought of talking about illness was infection, because we do now know about these invisible bacteria, viruses, and fungi that can infect us. Um, but that is certainly not the only illness. And for that matter, apparently, uh, two thirds of the cells in what we call our bodies are not our own human body cells, not our DNA, but the vast host of bacteria that inhabit us and keep us alive. So uh, most of them in us are friendly, not enemies. But that's just one. There's mechanical illness like a broken bone or being in a uh, yeah, car accident injury, or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. Right. There's injury. There's genetic disorders. So something goes wrong in the very coding that can, you know, people can live to a normal age with those and just, you know, struggle with what they do. But there are, you know, children who die in the womb or immediately upon birth because of such such things that cannot as far as we know, cannot be healed or fixed because it's encoded in each cell of the person's body. There's nutritional disorders like pellagra that comes from eating only corn and missing out on a protein or scurvy or type 2 diabetes. There's neurochemical disorders, which seem to have some place in understanding mental illness, so that doesn't seem to be uh, adequate. There's autoimmune disorders when our own bodies turn on ourselves. There's chronic pain. I see a chiropractor regularly, and she told me the fascinating fact that a lot of lower back pain has no source. Like the a chiropractor can address it mechanically, and uh, it's fixed, and yet the pain persists. And that that seems to be something like people who have like a, a limb amputated, but they still feel the yeah. pain there. So the experience of pain is not not necessarily mechanically or physically caused. So just to throw those out there, you know, <laughs> uh, some of them, uh, so, uh, how do I want to say this? Some uh, or a lot of illnesses seem to be the sheer consequence of being a body in the world. Like we could not have the good of bodily existence as we know it without, say, gravity, which means if you fall out of a tall tree, you're probably going to break something. Or if we need these bacteria to live because they do a lot of digestion for us, then, you know, it's not surprising that there are some bacteria that exist to exploit us and hurt us. So how do we think about illness as affliction or our suffering when so much of it seems to be bound up in the sheer reality of our, our creatureliness under the, the creator well, of all. I love this line of questioning, Sarah, because I really think you're pressing us beyond the superficial um, uh, and typical attitude that if it inconveniences me or pains me in any way, it's just bad and I've got to get it out of my life right away. Uh, and I think this is a, be having, becoming a deeply ingrained hedonism in American society, uh, or Western society more generally. Leibniz pointed out centuries ago that any conceivable creature is by definition limited by other 
conceivable creatures. Two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time. One will force the other one out of the space. <laughs> and the force impacting the other one can inflict pain. And anybody who's ever ridden on the New York City subway in the days before the pandemic knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. People in Tokyo are very polite. Even a crowded subway is a more pleasant experience. But point taken, nevertheless. Right. And the hygiene in Tokyo, I'm sure, is better, too. Anyway, <laughs> the, the point here is that any conceivable creature is vulnerable and exposed to pain, suffering, and ultimately to death because they are not infinite and not omnipotent. To be a creature is just as it is capable of pleasure and joy and health and prosperity and good feeling is equally exposed to the opposites of all those things. You cannot be a creature without being vulnerable. And this vulnerability is at the source of moral evil. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the difference between the natural evil of creatures being vulnerable, physically, psychologically, socially, etc., and being becoming morally evil? It's, a, it's a really, with Leibniz, a very simple reflection that if you lose the capacity to receive your suffering as the will and work of your creator who has created you in a state of vulnerability, if you are unwilling, to put it religiously, to take up your cross and follow Jesus, if you're unwilling to accept your pain as your own, you then inevitably want to take revenge by concocting outside sources as the sources of your pain and suffering, and you want to lash out at them and destroy them, uh, how, however irrational the connection that you make uh, between the two. So it's the faith in God's care, which includes God's permission of your creaturely suffering, is the only antidote to the moral evil of refusing to accept one's vulnerability and its concomitant suffering, and as a result, lashing out as real or imaginary causes of the pain that are outside of yourself. Yeah, and to build on that concept of moral evil, there's also the envy and resentment of the sick against the healthy for the apparently arbitrary distribution of health to others, but not to me. Good. And there's likewise the disgust and assumption of deserved punishment on the part of the healthy towards the sick that, well, I'm, I'm in good shape, so God must love me better, or yeah. what did that person do to deserve it? And then I would say, to build on the concept of vulnerability, when you recognize that you're vulnerable, then you realize other people are vulnerable and you can exploit it. I, I think, um, you know, this is not really illness, but something like torture is deliberate exploitation of the very vulnerability that another human being shares with me. But I arrogate to myself the power to exploit that in order to harm the other person. So I can see from all, like you said, from all of these natural limitations of being of being a creature, which are not in themselves evil, we not only experience evil um, in the form of suffering, but then we can turn it into our own moral evil against others and ourselves. Yeah, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful uh, piggybacking on the basic thought there and expanding it out in these ways. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And uh, as a result, it, this leads to a very deep problem in Christian theology, which I want to mention here. Is death natural or unnatural? To use, invoke the words nature again and the conundrum that we get into here. Or could we say, is, is death the, cre the creator's will or is death not the creator's will for his creatures? Right, right. And how difficult it is to answer that question. It really is. Um, the medieval theologians, including Luther, speculated about if Adam had not sinned, what would have happened? If Adam had maintained innocence and not sinned? 
And Luther came to the conclusion, uh, speculated, he didn't like to speculate, but on occasion he did, uh, speculated that if Adam had, had not sinned at a certain point, he simply would have been translated to eternal life. And so he would have experienced death as nothing but a blink of an eye, a snap of the hand, and whoosh, he would be a, have been promoted, as it were, to eternal life with God. But he would still leave this world. It would still be something analogous to death. Yes, exactly. So the point would be that death in that sense is natural because creatures do not have eternal life in themselves. They have a life that's temporal, a life that's given in birth and finished in death, and that it is limited, it's vulnerable in both directions. The birth can go wrong and the death can go wrong, right? But you can't take away the temporal boundedness. My life has a beginning, and as it had a beginning, it will have an end. And that's not unnatural or unseemly for one who is basically, essentially, fundamentally a creature. Right. And the interesting analogy to illness is that we do have a disease of a creature refusing to die. It's called cancer. (laughs) Those are cells which refuse to die as they're supposed to, but ever more frantically multiply. And, you know, if they succeed, they kill themselves because they kill their host. But it's interesting that even encoded in the level of health and illness is that refusal to die is actually toxic, not wholesome. You know, a great book of my generation in the 1970s was by a scholar named Ernst Becker. And the book, the title of the book was The Denial of Death. So really, I, I thought at the time when I read it, it's the, one of the most profound books I've ever read. And a lot of my ideas I attributed to Leibniz, but I, I think I could also mention here Ernst Becker and The Denial of Death. And he argued that the fundamental madness of contemporary Western civilization is a pervasive theology of glory, a pervasive denial of death, that we cannot accept our finitude, our mortality, and and our vulnerabilities. And because we deny these fundamental uh, parameters of human existence, we act out in all these destructive ways that you mentioned. But the problem here for Christian theology that I was pointing to, if we affirm all of this that I just said, we have a very good Jewish-Hebrew scripture theology of human embodiment. Uh, But we don't have a very good theology of the dominion of death yet, Uh, of the death in the sense that death is the last enemy, the last enemy of God. And I think we have to understand here that death is being used in an extended sense, a sense that builds upon the human experience of death, the sinful human, the faithless human's experience of death as the crushing defeat of one's, Ernst Becker called it a causa sui project, a self-causation project, Latin causa sui. And death is the final collapse of all our self-causation projects. It forces us to acknowledge that we're creatures, even if our whole lives we pretend to be our own creator. Death says, no, actually, you were a creature all along. From dust you came and to dust you return, right? And if there's any future for you, it's not in your hands, but in the hands of your creator. So then we need to ask what in this extended sense, in this transferred sense, what what is spiritual death? What is eternal death? What is death to God? Uh, and death is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. You know, that's a different sense of death. And that's, I think, it's in the light of that that we can talk about illness and disease and healing in a Christian soteriological context. Okay, well, let's do that. <laughs> okay. I, I was just thinking as you were, as you were saying that, um, uh, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this here, but, you know, the the way I experienced the death of my grandparents, your two parents, was very different. Um, do you want me to continue with this? Or yeah, sure. No, you go ahead. That? The personal stories are good. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, 
my grandmother, dad's mom, um, died an untimely death, uh, which we still understand to be a physician error, which I have learned is the um, fourth leading cause of death in the United States. So that's terrifying. And we should come back to that probably. Um, but it was a bad death. It was a death that no one was prepared for that shouldn't ha have happened. The surgery she took wasn't even necessary. It was one of those preemptive strikes kind of things. And just everything went wrong. And it was really shattering to our family. Um, but it wasn't a bad death in the sense that she died unreconciled to God. You know, there was no no feeling of that. Um, she was prepared and, um, you know, the her uh, on her tombstone is her confirmation uh, verse, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. I think that's Revelation 2.10. Uh, but then, you know, four years later, your father died. And in some part, we think due to a broken heart, uh, there was also physical causes like a staph infection and probably some other stuff going on. But it was it was a good death. Uh, we were prepared for it this time. Um, we had enough time to gather and to say goodbye. And he was I mean, I wasn't there at the very end, but there seemed to be a kind of elatedness about him that it, he wasn't afraid of it. And, um, you know, and my other two grandparents on, on mom's side, they had uh, less tragic endings. But they both also, I, I remember in both cases, um, again, I wasn't there at the very end, but they both seemed at peace. And death was not a terrifying enemy. It was the, you know, completion and then, you know, their, their translation to a, a better realm. And so I just... <laughs> There, I guess I particularly was thinking of your mom's case because it was death definitely experienced as enemy by her body and by us as her family, but it was not a spiritual enemy, I guess, um, only in the sense maybe that afterwards we had to reckon with the horror of her being taken away from us in this untimely and and wrong fashion, yeah. um, but not... Not yeah, not death as total dominion of darkness or something like that. Right, right. Okay, so those are, I mean, poignant stories and uh, ones that are very close to us. Uh, and we could talk about how um, healing takes place in that context. And I'll say a few words about that. Uh, my father, whom I loved dearly and admired greatly and in many ways followed in his footsteps, also had a dark streak in him. He had a little bit of a depressive personality, a little bit of a self-pitying personality, and uh, for those kinds of reasons, kind of unfairly lashed out, particularly at uh, some of my brothers as we were young and growing up, and that did damage. And uh, he was a good man, and he was a good pastor, uh, but he, like all of us sinners, he had these blind spots and these dark sides to his personality. And when he lost my mother, when his my mother was taken away from him, on whom he never realized how much he leaned um, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, as well as even physically, how much he leaned on her, those last years of his life were kind of a humiliation in that respect, and with precise respect to that dark side of his personality. And his suffering in those final years, uh, I would say, purged all that bitterness out of him. And by the time he slipped away from us, um, he was all peace and light, which was a, just a remarkable uh, spiritual healing to witness in the process of his dying. Well, where do you go from there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking, what does it, knowing that happens, and of course, this is by no means the only case, what does it mean for any of us to embrace <laughs> our pain, our suffering, um, not as as punishment, um, though um, clearly some, some forms of, of illness we experience are the result of our own self-destructive actions, but... You know, even, I don't know, 
I, I like I can't get a handle on it, Dad. It just keeps moving, and, and every time I say something, I want to qualify it with something else. I, this must be why we need uh, pastors and Christian companions to help us discern in each case, because it's really hard to formulate a general rule. Well, I, th- I think that I would still though like to say that the the true and spiritual healing is the ability to take up one's own cross and follow Jesus. That. Any physical healing that we experience in life is temporary. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign that points forward to the ultimate healing of the resurrection. But it can be no more than temporary. Temporary relief from pain, temporary restoration of facilities, but not permanent, certainly not eternal. We're Lazarus, not Jesus. We're Lazarus, not Jesus, not yet. And the wisdom that has to accompany that is recognition that the healing that we receive in this life is always going to be dialectically connected to spiritual healing. And spiritual healing has to do with cross-bearing. You know... uh, When our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, repent, Martin Luther penned the first thesis of the 95, famous, he meant for the entire life of the Christian to be one of repentance. And as you know from the book I wrote about this in 2017, Luther versus Pope Leo, Luther's astonishing belief in purgatory was that it's not to be reserved for some future state of torment after mortal death. But basically, by saying lifelong repentance, Luther was saying purgatory now, without delay, purgatory now. Now is the time to purge yourself of your sins and to embrace your sorrows and embrace your sufferings as the way uh, through to the uh, purification, the true uh, purification of your own souls, traumatized and sin-scarred as they are. So I think what we need to find a way to articulate, I'm going to try, I don't think I'm going to do it right, is that what we find, I think, rightly offensive is a quick and cheap inference that your suffering, whether it's mental, spiritual, or physical, or emotional, Um, is either punishment, like that you can correlate in a one-to-one fashion with a sin. You know, for each sin, there is an equal and opposite punishment. Or that God is teaching you a lesson in a kind of sadistic schoolmaster kind of way. I think we've all seen endless evidence of how incredibly toxic and destructive that is. But in saying that, I don't think we want to exclude or remove from people the... I don't know, like the spiritual right and freedom to engage their suffering in a way that serves them as as redeemed creatures of God. So to say that, um, <laughs> I would never say to someone else, here's why you've got cancer. But for example, we know someone who has had cancer and has um dealt with it spiritually and recovered, but not because someone else forced it on her. (laughs) We don't want to be Job's friends, you know, saying you're suffering because of some secret sin. I mean, those are false friends. And at the end, when the Lord appears out of the wilderness and speaks, he says to the friends that you've spoken falsely about me, but Job, my servant, has said the truth. And the truth is that the causal explanation of suffering is theologically opaque. We have, we have no idea mm. theologically why suffering falls, like my mother, why did my, my good, wonderful mother at the age of 71 uh, die from medical neglect? You know, why? If you ask that causal question that way, you're asking, you're not asking a theological question, you're asking a magical question. That can't, that can't be explained theologically and shouldn't even be tried to be explained theologically. Jesus says, to the, when the tower falls on and kills 18 people, Jesus does not say that they're worse sinners, but he says, 
so you will all perish if you do not likewise repent. And that's, that's what we have to say to these, peer, uh, to these situations of, of, of catastrophic trauma or suffering that, that happened to people uh, for no reason that can be explained theologically. So maybe what we can say or what we can invite people into is saying, we cannot give you a theological reason why you have this particular illness, crisis, chronic condition, disorder, whatever. What we can do is invite you into the spiritual process of making use of it for your good and for God's good rather than letting it be the winner in this situation. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to um, someone who lost his wife very young, uh, just tragically, and they had two small children. But he told me that she said on her deathbed, I have not been cured, but I have been healed. Mm. And although her death was surely tragic, it wasn't evil in a certain sense because of whatever that meant to her of being healed. And, um, and you know, she... She, she blessed him to go forward and remarry, and he did. And, you know, uh, people who marry again after the death of a spouse, they, you know, they, they keep the first spouse with them. But that was part of the gift to him for the rest of his life without her is for her to be healed as she died. Yeah, that's like my father's experience of my mother's death, yeah, in some ways. I think we, what we can do, and this we can do as competent Christian pastors and theologians, is not give theological reasons for suffering, but we can give scientific reasons for suffering. We, we, we do have scientific knowledge of cause and effect. If I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day for 40 or 50 years, if I live that long, I can't be surprised if I die of a heart attack or lung cancer, right? And right, in terms right, of right. social yeah. justice, when we pollute the atmosphere and fill up the ground soil with toxic chemicals, uh, do we, are we surprised that people, poor people who have to live in these urban ghettos uh, uh, have chronic health problems? Of course we can't be surprised. Uh, so I think that one of the things theology can do is not give theological explanations of certain kinds of injury and suffering, but we can certainly study and give well-grounded scientific explanations of certain kinds of suffering. And that summons people to take responsibility for their own behavior, which is a spiritually good thing to do. Yeah, I totally, I totally endorse that. And, and as far as we can, we should. But I think, you know, going back to this uh, prosperity parade I saw and people seeking spiritual answers to illness, I think this still presses on us the, the question of the limitations of our knowledge and even marvelous Western medicine, which has figured out a lot of stuff. I think there is so much that is not figured out, not well understood. Maybe some of the paradigms for thinking about it scientifically are inadequate. I think that's that's why something like a healing ministry still needs to be in place. The, the most useful distinction I've heard, and I, again, I'm not a professional, <laughs> I'm groping my way towards this of partly out of my own experience of living in a body, but there's a standard distinction between acute care and chronic care. And for acute uh, crises, medical crises, you cannot do better than Western medicine. And that means like uh, a, an open wound that is infected, an exploding appendix that has to be removed, um, malaria, things that are a broken bone and setting it, like things like that that are acute, immediate crises that can be fixed and the cause is very clear. But it seems to me, Dad, that huge numbers of people are suffering from at least physical ailments, um, also mental illnesses, and then all the spiritual and emotional ramifications of those that are very poorly understood. Uh, I don't know. It seems to me in some cases badly treated, mistreated, misattributed. Um, and so, I mean, that uh, do the science as far as we can. But I think what 
the reason why we're seeing such an explosion, not only of like, um, you know, healing ministry, but also of like kind of quackery (laughs) and alternate, maybe not quackery, but alternate forms of medicine is people's physical needs at least are just not being met. And those seem to be more in the realm of chronic conditions, like ongoing pain, digestive issues, mental malaise, um, all, you know, those kind of things. Well, that, you know, that would bring us to a whole nother podcast on the cultural sickness <laughs> of the modern world and what's gone wrong. The pandemic has made it very clear uh, that the conditions of urban life um, are uh, in the contemporary Western developed societies are, are uh, increasingly being called into question. There's both the uh, breakdown of, of civility going on in the cities. There's the social justice inequities that are revealing how poor the access to standard, what you called acute care, is for poor black and brown communities in America. And uh, it's also uh, the attraction of living in, in dense urban centers has been called into question by the uh, contagion, uh, the possibility of uh, catching a deadly infection just by sheer proximity to massive amounts of other people. Uh, I think there's a whole lot of questioning going on now uh, as a result of the pandemic. And as a theologian, I worry that I pray for the swift coming of a vaccine but I worry that the swift solution of the pandemic by a technological miracle of a vaccine will lead us to draw all the wrong kinds of conclusions, and we won't have the courage or the wisdom to look more deeply at the huge vulnerabilities of the world we've built. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with any of that, but I still want to push back because it's, I mean, the example you've given is one that has a very clear cause, like it's the virus, it's the coronavirus, we know this. But there's so much other stuff going on that doesn't have a clear solution. So just a little example from my own life, I have dealt for years and years with headaches, neck aches, back aches. um, And it seems to just be a simple result of, of reading, typing and sitting. And, you know, that's, that's, the work that I'm rewarded for. It's the stuff that I like to do. Um, Huge numbers of people have these problems. This isn't, you know, social injustice, and it's not a, you know, an invading bacterium or virus. It's just the mechanical consequence of being a body in the world. Or another one is, um, you know, all the efforts to lower people's blood pressure and the the pharmaceuticals that they're encouraged to take. And, you know, there's questions being raised now, like, is it a good idea to take these things? How much do we intervene with our bodily chemistry through medicine? And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to um, identify which you should and which you shouldn't take, but I think there's just... I just want to, I guess all I want to say is that um, it's more satisfying to address things with a clear cause like the coronavirus or right. pollution in, in places that, that can be removed. But I think a lot of our experience of, of being unwell is not so easily solved. There's, there's deeper and, let's say, chronic rather than acute causes that I think people are really looking for answers to. And... I don't know. This this is probably going too far, but as I was thinking over Jesus' miracles, they are all um, either chronic or lost causes, but there's no acute things. Like, Jesus never sets a bone or <laughs> heals an infection. You know, it's like epilepsy, blindness, being deaf-mute, the issue of blood. I mean, now we would treat that as an acute care thing, but at, at, at that time, it was simply a chronic issue. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting to me that there is no, like, uh, <laughs> acute care miracles in the Bible. And uh, the, the ultimate chronic condition, of course, is death. And Jesus also heals that in the case of Lazarus as well, overcoming it himself. So anyway, I just, um, yeah, I've said enough. Well, no, I think, Sarah, that's all very good, and these are wonderful lines of questioning, but I think they would get us off into a whole other hour on a whole different podcast. I do think that the crisis of the present time should cause among believing people and theologians uh, a rather profounder 
examination of the presuppositions of the modern world that we have built uh, and how much of it is predicated upon the denial of death uh, that Ernst Becker talked about, which is like a systematic denial of our fundamental vulnerability and therefore our need for human solidarity and ultimately for the healing of the beloved community. Yeah, and I think what we can offer as pastors and theologians is to always be pushing the holistic solution and just, you know, make use of every every opportunity for care that exists to you. So if you have a acute or or chronic physical condition that can be addressed by modern Western medicine, by all means, take advantage of it. And if what you need is talk therapy, by all means, go to talk therapy. And if what you need to do is uh, repent and have people lay their hands on you and anoint you with oil, come and do that too. <laughs> but we should we should be able as theologians, if we're, again, operating with a creator-creature rather than a supernature-nature distinction, then we don't have to falsely pick and choose. We can commend all of these things because we are all of these dimensions. That's right. Yes, that's a good, good note of holism on which to end this. Yeah, I just, well, I'm not, not going to quite add. I just wanted to add one more thing is um, two remarkable healing ministries just in the Lutheran tradition are of the um, the Blumhart father and son in, in Germany in the late 19th century and of uh, Neni Lava, the Malagasy prophetess um, in Madagascar. And um, I've read a fair bit about both of them, uh, the, the father and son and the, this woman. And um, what's striking is that they always preached repentance together with healing, but it rarely seemed that uh, there was a one-to-one correspondence between because you did this, you got that illness or crisis. Um, and a lot of times healing is just healing, but whoever you were, you were always encouraged to repent. And I think, again, that that testifies to a well-done healing ministry does not pick and choose, but it also doesn't simplistically reduce. It allows for the full complexity of the human experience of, of suffering and wholeness. Well, maybe that's another podcast for next year, the Bloomhearts and Nani Lava. Maybe so. Maybe so. Listeners, if you'd like to hear those, let us know. All right. Well, um, Dad, I know you wanted to end with uh, just some words about the prospect of a liturgical service of healing. So why don't you finish us off talking about that? Well, I think, you know, I've often thought about what I said at the very beginning, that Jesus's ministry in Galilee is characterized by his conflict with the kingdom of the devil, to whom the afflictions of suffering human beings are attributed. They were oppressed by the devil. That's where the afflictions come from. And Jesus inaugurates the reign of God in his ministry with his healing miracles, which are pushing back the kingdom of Satan. Now, that's a whole apocalyptic scenario that we don't need to take a diversion into here. We've talked about that on other podcasts. But it, it strikes me that the ministry of the kingdom of God begins with Jesus doing in deeds as well as words, enacting the reign of God, which is pushing back the reign of Satan. And this is manifest not only in the spiritual words of forgiveness to those who repent, but also the physical acts of healing that come with him. And I think the church's ministry should follow this model, particularly for Lutheran traditions who have totally forgotten how to do evangelism, how to actually proclaim in word and deed the reign of God in the name of Jesus. And I think one way to do evangelism is to begin with the simple fact that we are all bodies, and all bodies have their traumas, their hurts, their aches, their pains, their injuries, their sorrows, their diseases. And to have the service of the word for healing in the Lutheran Book of Worship is a powerful tool to have a public non-Eucharistic service, but a public service for seekers and inquirers and all who are seeking relief from their sorrows. And to have a kind of a catechetical service in which uh, the pastor gives a brief message on some aspect of the gospel and then invites those who are sorrowing or hurting or there on behalf of others 
to submit their prayer requests. And then during the time of prayer, for those who want healing to come forward uh, for the anointing with oil and the laying on of hands. I realize we can't do that with social distancing at the moment, but that's a kind of a model. And then there's no, no offering, no collection, nothing like that. Just an opportunity to evangelize, to do the good news of the kingdom of God in word and deed in a, in a, a formal liturgy that is express, expressly intended to invite the suffering of the community in. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, you know, it, it really <laughs> pushes for me, again, the, the terrible forced choice here, because I think part of what is truly healing about those is being close to and touched by other human beings with the laying on of hands and anointing of oil. And I, I don't have a solution to this, but I worry that the precise social or physical distancing of the pandemic is giving rise to so many more malaises of so many other kinds so true. precisely by cutting, cutting that healing touch off. We're really in a, a tough spot right now. So, Lord, have mercy, yes, right? We're, we're suffering under the judgment of God in this respect. And how long this can last and how tolerable, tolerable it will prove, I don't know. Nobody really knows. Yeah. But I think we have to raise the issue. Uh, I've heard parishioners, lay people say, where's the, courage, the church's courage of faith to act on its beliefs in this pandemic? And... Uh, I'm inclined to say we should follow the advice of the scientists un until it proves to be untrue. Yeah. Well, those are all the, the painful judgment calls we have to make throughout this. I don't, I'm, I'm at a loss myself. We all are. And uh, so. it's as good as theologians, we admit that. All right. That, I think, is the right place to end. All right, well, next time on the show, our topic will be an unlikely marriage. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.